Well, Sarah, thank you very much indeed for that very, very clear reading. Won't you bow with me and let's ask for God's help as we come to this uh, important passage in Luke's Gospel. Heavenly Father, as we stand at the start of a new year with all its challenges and opportunities and many uncertainties, we need a clear word from heaven. And we pray that you would bless us with that word this morning. Please banish from our hearts and minds all distracting cares and worries and help us to be attentive to the unchanging word of truth. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, it would be a great help to me if you could keep your Bibles open, please, at Luke 20, and also have the outline, uh, uh, which explains where we're going in the next few minutes, and you'll find that on the inside of the white bulletin that you were given when you came in. Uh, Joseph Stalin uh, was the most bloodthirsty dictator of the 20th century. Uh, He was responsible for more mass killings than anybody else, including Adolf Hitler. Uh, I discovered this week that, uh, ironically, at one time, Stalin had been a seminary student training for full-time pastoral ministry. But uh, somewhere along the way, he, he made a decisive break with Christianity, and for the rest of his life, he was a militant atheist, causing more human misery and suffering than anybody else. But uh, his daughter gives a fascinating account of his death. She says that as Joseph Stalin lay dying, he was plagued by terrifying hallucinations. And uh, almost with his last breath, he sat up in bed and he shook his fist at heaven. And then he fell back on his his pillow and died. So it seems that Joseph Stalin really did believe in God after all. But in those last moments, instead of uh, repenting and asking God for forgiveness, his heart was so hard that all he could do was shake his fist at God in defiance. Now that is the kind of thing that we find in this part of Luke's Gospel. Uh, In our last study, we saw that when Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, his ministry immediately brought him into conflict with the religious authorities. So if you glance back to chapter 19 and verse 47, Luke tells us, every day Jesus was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So that week, you see, Jesus was the star attraction in Jerusalem. Huge crowds turned out to listen to him. But the religious leaders couldn't stomach it. Uh, They wanted to kill him. And we find exactly that same tension in our passage this morning. So, right at the end of the passage, in verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately, 
because they knew Jesus had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Now what I want you to see is that Luke is making a contrast. He's saying that on the one hand, there is Jesus Christ who has this tremendous spiritual and moral authority. But on the other hand, (coughs) you have the religious leaders who have no spiritual or moral authority whatsoever. Theirs is actually only a paper authority. It's the authority of a religious bureaucracy. And the point is that if any authority does not command the hearts and minds of the people, it must eventually crumble. It might take decades for that to happen, but in the end, that kind of authority must be overturned. So, in this chapter, what we have is the conflict between two different authorities. And, of course, that was the human issue that led eventually to Jesus being nailed to the cross. Were the religious leaders and the political leaders going to accept the kingship of Jesus or were they going to reject him? Is Jesus really their king and their lord or are they going to kill him? So verse 2 is very much the key verse of the whole passage. Verse 2, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? What authority does Jesus really have? Now that is not just a question in Israel's history back then. It is actually the key question in our own lives this morning. It's the challenge facing every one of us right at the start of 2018. Because, you see, if we could see into one another's hearts and minds, we would find that we're actually a very mixed group of people. Some of us really do try to live under the authority of Jesus. We do really try to live in the reality that Jesus is Lord and King. And we do want our lives to be under his control. But some of us do it only partially. Uh, We're hot and cold Christians. Sometimes we are enthusiastic, but often we're not. And we vary in our view of Jesus. Sometimes we do want to follow him, but other times we go for days or even weeks without praying or even opening a Bible or really following him at all. And some of us have never really got to the point where we've acknowledged that Jesus is Lord in the first place. Uh, We've avoided him, uh, hoping all this, this gospel thing isn't true because we actually don't want his authority in our lives. So we are actually a very mixed group of people. And of course, every congregation is. Now of course we can't see into one another's hearts. But we can see our own heart, and God, of course, sees everything. So the question this morning is, what authority does Jesus have in your life and in my life? 
Not what authority do you think he might have in somebody else's life, not that, but in your own life before God this morning, tell us, Jesus, by what authority you are doing these things. And Jesus answers that question in three, I think, very powerful and penetrating ways. First of all, in verses 3 to 8, he talks about the ministry of John. Now, if you read those verses quickly, uh, it might almost seem that Jesus is playing a rather childish game of tit for tat, because the religious leaders ask Jesus a difficult question, and uh, he responds by asking them a more difficult question. They say, who gave you this authority? And Jesus says, I'll ask you a question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Uh, They refuse to answer, and eventually they say in verse 7, well, we don't know who it was from. And Jesus says in verse 8, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Now, you know, is that just a game of words? Of course it isn't. There's actually far more to it than that. Jesus is actually taking them to the very heart of their own question. Because, you see, John the Baptist had no officially recognised qualifications as a religious leader. Uh, Neither had Jesus, of course. Neither Jesus nor John uh, had been through the rabbi's training school. They had no theological degree or whatever the equivalent was back in those days. John the Baptist suddenly appeared out of nowhere in the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, He was, as the Old Testament described it, the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. And so you see, with his cloak of camel's hair and his rather eccentric diet, John was a real embarrassment to the religious authorities. The problem was that the John the Baptist movement had been extremely popular in Galilee. So the religious leaders had avoided expressing their opinion. They wouldn't say whether they were for it or against it. Elsewhere, we're told that they sent a a delegation from Jerusalem to observe it, but they didn't come out publicly either for or against John. They sat on the fence. And Jesus is reminding them of that in verse 4. He says to them, now tell me, what did you think about John's baptism? Meaning not just the, the physical immersions in the Jordan River, but his whole ministry. Uh, Jesus is saying, do you think his ministry was from heaven or from men? That he made it all up himself, that he created his own popular movement. Now the reason that Jesus is asking that question is because John had insisted that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, In the Gospel of John, we're told that John the Baptist turned to his own disciples and pointing to Jesus, he said, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And from that moment on, 
some of them began to follow Jesus. So Jesus' question is actually highly relevant. Was John an inspired prophet or was he just a religious eccentric? Because if he came from God, then his claims about Jesus must be true. And the authority that Jesus is exercising must be an authority from God himself. So can you see that when Jesus raises the question of John's ministry, he's not just being difficult, he's not just trying to raise a smokescreen, he's actually taking them to the heart of the issue. He's saying, John the Baptist said that I am the Son of God. And when the Spirit of God came down upon me as a dove, which John saw and other people saw, do you think that God was in that? Or was that just a function of John's overactive imagination? And so, in verse 5 of the passage, we find the religious leaders have a rather hasty committee meeting. And they say, well, you know, if we say from heaven, he's going to ask, well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, well, all the people will stone us because they were persuaded that John was a prophet. Now, doesn't that give us a very interesting insight into their hearts? You see, their heart answer was that they had rejected John. There was actually no doubt about that. They flatly refused to accept him as a prophet. Luke has actually already told us about that, and if you're taking notes, you can look it up later. It's Luke 7, verse 29. But they didn't accept him at all. They didn't believe in him, but they knew that if they now said that John wasn't a prophet, that the crowd would disagree. And because they depended upon the support of the crowd for their authority, they sat on the fence. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because it's always the mark of weak leadership to bend with popular opinion. So when people say, you must do this, Uh, the weak leader immediately does it, whether it's right or wrong. But of course, the strong leader has convictions, and he might sometimes stand against popular opinion if he believes it's right to do so. But these people were weak, because they had no inner convictions. They were religious leaders in name only, But morally and spiritually, they were empty. And that's confirmed by their lamentably weak reply in verse 7. We don't know where it was from. You see, they were far, far more concerned about their office and their status than they were about the truth of God. And you know, once the church gets into the hands of people like that, Well, only heaven can help us. Now, of course, mercifully, heaven has helped us in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Luke chapter 20, that is still in the future. So here, in verse 8, Jesus turns to them and he says, Neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Or to paraphrase, 
you've already rejected John and in rejecting John you have rejected me. And you see, by the way that Luke tells the story, he's telling us that the real problem in coming to terms with the Lordship of Jesus Christ is not ignorance. No, the real problem is rebellion. People refuse to submit to the Lordship of Jesus, not because there's insufficient evidence, but because we don't actually want him to be Lord in our lives. Isn't that true? When we sin against him and we turn our backs on his will for us and go our own way, it's never because we don't know his will. It's not because we never hear it. It's just because we don't want it. And we rebel against the authority of Christ just as these religious leaders did. Because that's what the human heart is like. But you see, brothers and sisters, the authority of Christ has already been established. And you and I need to be aware, be very careful, of a religious formalism that looks absolutely marvellous on the outside, that says, yes, we're real believers in God, when all the time on the inside... What we're actually saying is, I will not let Jesus Christ control my life. Now, it's very, very easy to live like that. To be fine on the outside, but actually resisting his authority inside. That is to live a divided life. That's what these religious leaders were doing, and it ended in disaster. So Jesus says, the ministry of John the Baptist is my first statement about my authority. He recognised me as someone come from God, but you've rejected him. The second statement that Jesus makes about his authority is in the message of the parable in verses 9 to 16. Now, uh, this is an interesting one, because most of the parables of Jesus have got one major meaning, one great lesson that they're teaching. But there are uh, other parables with different elements, and each element has got a particular significance. And this parable is one of those. But whatever does it mean? Well, as soon as Jesus began to tell the story, a man planted a vineyard, his audience would have remembered one of the most famous passages in the whole of the Old Testament. So I'd like you to keep a finger in Luke 20 and turn with me please to Isaiah 5 on page 482. Isaiah chapter 5, page 482 and we're at the bottom of the left hand column. And uh, if you've got the NIV there, you'll notice it says in the heading, uh, it's the Song of the Vineyard. Notice how verse 1 begins. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. Now, what on earth is this vineyard all about? Well, look on to the right-hand column to verse 7. 
verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. But he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Now you see, nobody listening to Jesus would have been in any doubt at all as to what the vineyard symbolised. He was talking about the nation. He was talking about the people of God. Now, in Isaiah's poem, uh, you'll notice that the owner comes to his vineyard looking for good fruit. But uh, when he gets to the vineyard, in verse 4b, all that he finds are bad grapes. And uh, he says, basically, I've done all that I can for the vineyard, but now I'm going to tear down the wall and let it go to ruin. That's verses 5 and 6. There's nothing more I can do for it. Now, in Isaiah's book, that was a prophecy about the judgment that was about to fall on Israel when the nation was taken into exile in Babylon. But now come back to Luke chapter 20 because Jesus in Luke 20 picks up that familiar image but he tells a new story. And in the story that Jesus tells the fruit is there and the fruit is available. But the tenant farmers refuse to recognise the owner's rights. And you'll see that in verse 10. Luke 20, verse 10. At harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Clearly, the tenants are the people who are responsible for running the vineyard on behalf of the owner. And if the vineyard is the nation... Well, the tenants are those who are responsible for the spiritual life of Israel. In other words, it's the very same people who are questioning the authority of Jesus in chapter 20. They are the tenants. And they knew it. Because in verse 19, they saw that Jesus had spoken this parable against them. And what does Jesus say? Well, he says that from time to time the owner has sent his servants in order to gather the fruits of his vineyard. He's been looking for a harvest from his investment. But he finds that the tenants are the ones who are preventing him from reaping a harvest. And they treat his servants with increasing violence. Verse 10, they beat the first one. Verse 11, the owner sent another who they beat and treated shamefully. In verse 12, he sent still a third, but they wounded him and threw him out. And uh, you may remember from our studies last year that when Jesus was approaching Jerusalem back in chapter 13, Jesus wept over the city, didn't he? And he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. And that was precisely what happened down the centuries. Israel had not 
listen to the prophets. Uh, They'd been bringing the word of God to the people and many of them had been martyred for their pains. And so now in despair, the owner decides to send his beloved son. Verse 13, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But, verse 15, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, to our Western ears, that might sound just a little bit far-fetched, but I have to tell you, it actually fits Middle Eastern culture perfectly. You see, in the Middle East, if the owner of a property died and the property wasn't claimed by a close relative, then the tenants of the vineyard, or whatever it was, could claim it as their own. It was the right of possession. Now, they were the sitting tenants. If nobody else claimed it quickly, it was theirs by law. So when the son comes along in verse 13, the implication is that when the owner dies, if there is no heir, the vineyard will be theirs. And that's the background to verse 14. When the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. To them, it seemed entirely logical. But of course, they had completely miscalculated. Because Jesus says the owner hasn't died. He's still very much alive. And when they murder his son, what's the owner going to do? Verse 16. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now the root idea of the story is that by their behaviour, the tenants were showing that they believed the vineyard was theirs and not God's. So they could do whatever they liked with it. And in Jesus' day, that actually was the attitude of the religious leaders. They had no sense of being tenants and therefore responsible for the master's property. They had no sense of being shepherds of God's flock. And instead what they were saying was, look, we're the owners, we make the rules around here, it's our nation, it's our temple, we're the overlords and we're going to do what we like with our vineyard. And that attitude was so deeply ingrained in them that they were willing to kill the Son of God without a second thought. Now you see, this is actually a very great danger for any religious leader to fall into. To, as it were, usurp Christ's rights as the owner and to act as if the church belonged to me. But as soon as we start to think like that, to think that it's my church, well, we we know that we're a million miles off course because it isn't. It is Christ's church. He's the head of the church and it doesn't belong to any of us. And so in the parable, Jesus is claiming the authority of the Son of God and he says, look, these people, these covenant people belong to me. I'm the Son, I'm the heir and I have the right to the fruit of my vineyard. And in New Testament terms, he says exactly the same thing to us this morning. 
He says, I am the Lord of the church and I have the right to your love, to your trust and to your obedience. But he also knows the hearts of his opponents. And the parable is saying that he's going to come in judgment not because they are ignorant of his identity, not because they failed to recognise him as the owner's son, but because they do. That is actually the breathtaking thing about this parable. You see, it wasn't that they didn't know who Jesus was. It was that they did know. And yet they decided to kill him anyway, quite deliberately. They knew he was the Son of God, and yet they still said, this is the heir, we're going to kill him. And so the breathtaking thing, you see, was their deliberate rebellion. All the evidence was there before them. They'd seen all the the miracles, they'd heard his teaching, they'd observed his character, but they said, we will not accept him. We will not give him the vineyard, we're going to keep it under our control. And in verse 15, Jesus says, the owner will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And you see, Jesus is teaching us this morning that our problem is not ignorance. It is rebellion. You know, how often have we said, uh, Jesus is Lord and, and sung hymns along that line about Jesus being the Son of the Father. But when he's made a demand of our lives and he said, this is a word I want you to obey that we've actually said in our hearts out of the vineyard. I don't want you. This is way too intrusive, way too inconvenient. Uh, I'll call you Lord, but I'm not actually going to do the things you tell me to do. And how much that must grieve and anger God's holy heart. And friends, I want to say to us this morning that this is how churches die. You know, a hundred years ago, um, most people in the churches of the West really believed that the Bible is the word of God and they knew their Bibles pretty well. That is not the case today. Now, what's changed? Well, I'll tell you what's changed. The people in charge of the vineyards have not recognised the authority of God's Son. They've turned their back on him. They, they kind of edited the Gospels and the New Testament message to make it more digestible. They have, as it were, taken out their theological scissors and said, well, um, I'll give you this bit, but I'm not going to give you that bit. Um, they've said, it's our church. We're going to decide what people believe around here. And Jesus says, if you behave like that, I'll give it to someone else. And so you see, in every generation, you find churches dying because the tenants, the leaders, have rejected the son's authority. And at the same time, you find new churches being planted and growing because, by the grace of God, there are people who will accept his authority. And Jesus gives the vineyard 
to those who are prepared to obey him. Now in Luke chapter 20, you see, Jesus is saying that the kingdom is going to be taken out of Israel's hands and given to a new international community of faithful, believing people. The new Israel, the church of Jesus Christ, to people who truly believe in him. And of course, that is precisely what's happened, isn't it? It's precisely what's happened. So Jesus, what authority do you have? Look at the ministry of John. Listen to the message of the parable. And thirdly, learn the meaning of the capstone in verses 17 to 19. Come with me to verse 17. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. What a verse that is. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus coming into this room this morning and looking you straight in the eye? That would be a fairly challenging encounter, wouldn't it? You see, it speaks, doesn't it, of his earnest sincerity. Jesus is never frightened of applying his word directly and personally to make us face the truth. And he is looking at you and me in the eye this morning. And he quotes from Psalm 118, which was the psalm that the crowd had been singing on their way into the city on Palm Sunday. You may remember on that occasion they were singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And at the time, everyone recognised that that was a psalm about the Messiah. That's why the Pharisees were so angry when Jesus allowed his disciples to sing it as he rode into the city. Because they knew that it was a claim that Jesus is the Son of God. Now there are lots of other images in Psalm 118, but one of them concerns this stone that was rejected by the builders, but was ultimately elevated to be the capstone, the most important stone in the building. And you see, Jesus is saying here, look, you people, you've been singing this psalm. Now what do you think this means? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And then Jesus makes one of those marvellous, mysterious statements that takes us right to the very heart of the matter, but on the surface is a little bit confusing. Verse 18, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Whatever does that mean? Well, actually, there's a very rich biblical context to it, and I wish we had time to explore all of it this morning. Unfortunately, we don't, but I have given you some of the questions in this week's Bible study to help you think about it uh, a little bit more widely. This morning, I just want to give you one thought, because there is a brilliant play on words here. Because in Hebrew, the word for stone is almost the same as the word for son. There's just one letter difference. And what Jesus is saying here, you see, is that it is our response to him as the son of God 
as the capstone of the building that is absolutely decisive for our eternal future. If we fall on the stone, we are broken. If the stone falls on us, we're crushed to pieces. Either way, there's a breaking. And what Jesus is saying is, either I humble myself before Christ the Son in this world, I fall, as it were, on the stone, on the Son, and I allow him to be Lord of my life. Or in the next world, I must grudgingly acknowledge that he is Lord and be destroyed forever by his judgment. If I stumble on the stone now, well, it might be an offence to me at first. It's certainly going to involve taking me to pieces. It's certainly going to involve exposing all of my pride and my rebellion against God. And it's going to involve living my life according to his principles rather than my principles. But, but that's a very healthy breaking, isn't it? And that is what real repentance is actually all about. It's what leads to faith in Jesus as our living Saviour. We all need to be broken on the stone of Christ if ever we're going to be put back together as sanctified people, as believing disciples. Because he is the only foundation stone for the building. There isn't another one. But if we reject Christ, if we reject the capstone, well, ultimately it's going to fall on us. And there can be no escape. Because he is the only foundation stone. He is the ruler of the universe. He is the Lord of all. See, you can't escape the capstone. You can't avoid Jesus Christ. And he still divides people in 2018 in just the same way as he did back in Luke, 20, Luke chapter 20. And that division is entirely according to how we respond. So what authority does Jesus have? Total authority. Ultimately, there is no other authority. He is the Son of God, he is the Lamb of God, he is the owner of the vineyard, he is the capstone, he is the only foundation for the building. He is the one from whom none of us can ever escape. He's the one before whom we're all going to stand as our judge and give an account for the way that we've lived. And yes, it is humbling. And it does break us up to, to recognise that we need to come to him and ask him for forgiveness and submit to his lordship and uh, begin to order our lives according to the reality that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. But what a great thing that is when it happens, isn't it? You know, we're starting to live our lives in accordance with reality, with truth. And we start to live a life of real significance and purpose. Wouldn't that be a great thing in 2018? 
Alternatively, of course, we can just be like the religious leaders and we can say, well, you know, the evidence doesn't quite convince me 100%. I'm not going to have him rule over me. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. But you see, in the end, they lost everything. And Joseph Stalin did that. And even with all of the power at his disposal, no one in the world was more powerful at that time than Joseph Stalin. But even he couldn't escape the owner of the vineyard on his deathbed. And so at the beginning of 2018, the question for each one of us in church this morning is what authority does Jesus really have in my life. Let's pray together. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we we pray that you would work in our minds and hearts. But we may not just say Jesus is Lord, but actually live under your authority. Thank you that your service is perfect freedom, that when we are broken on the capstone, who is Christ? When all our pride and rebellion and self-will is humbled, by your love and grace revealed at the cross, we actually find ourselves for the first time. So Lord, I pray this morning that we would be humble before the living Lord and know that in Christ we have found forgiveness and peace and joy. Thank you for the baptism that Jesus came to bring the baptism of repentance and faith, of turning from sin and trusting in you, the living God. Thank you for the kingdom that Jesus opened to everyone who believes in him. And so, Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning as sovereign king of the universe, our God, our master, our Sovereign Lord. And we pray, oh how we pray, that these might not just be words on a Sunday morning, but the very fabric of our lives every day that you give us life. And we ask it for your name's sake. Amen.